All right, guys, we're going to jump back in. So if you have your nine marks of a healthy church sheet, we'll pick it up right with the point Greg was making as we were coming to break time. So uh, I think Greg's exactly right. Points three and four go together, and uh, a misunderstanding of them is going to cause a lot of problems in churches. So let's spend some time talking about that issue. Number four, biblical understanding of conversion. Greg, can you read that one? Yeah. Biblical understanding of conversion. When we have a biblical understanding of the gospel, we must then also have a proper understanding of conversion. Conversion is a new birth from death to life and is a work of God. It is not merely a change of attitude or a change of affection, but a change of nature. Conversion does not need to be an exciting emotional experience, but does need to produce fruit to be judged a true conversion. Jerry, why don't you start us off on this one? This is an important issue. Yeah, it sure is. And... You know, we believe, I like that last line, this well-written, I think, there. It does not need to be exciting emotional experience, depending on maybe your personality or depending on all kinds of things. That's why every testimony, right, really is, is some different in, in maybe how someone feels about it or how exciting it is. But it does need to produce fruit to be judged a true conversion. And so even in the last whatever 15 weeks of Sunday school as we've kind of been walking through um, the TULIP kind of series and the Providence series, that you can see that everybody that's truly converted, there's going to be fruit there. Now, that's for sure not saying that you can earn your salvation by doing anything. You know, that goes up earlier there that it is a change of nature that only God does, moving somebody from death to life. But uh, it, may, it reminds me of um, Lord willing on Saturdays uh, coming up from the first Saturday of all the months as men are going to get together, and we want to hear somebody's testimony each Saturday because they're just so thrilling. Scott, you've talked about how testimonies are just so thrilling of the way God converts different people. Oh, yeah, I agree, agree totally. I mean, it's just, and it's, it's just so great to hear them. Like, people think I have a boring testimony, but there's, there's no there boring testimony. There is no such thing. God bringing people from death to life. Um, yeah, man, I just think, and I think that I didn't have, I just think faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word. Like, God's going to bring us through, through the Word, but God may use all kinds of different means. He may use an aunt or an uncle or a missionary story, a biography story. I mean, you just, you can hear all these different, like R.C. Sproul, the passage was like, a tree falls in the woods and there it lies. That's the, that's the verse that converted. He said, no one in the history of the church. Ecclesiastes. Was yeah, Ecclesiastes. That's what, but that would, yeah, he was that tree falling. Like, that what God used to bring him to faith. But then the result, the fruit is going to be the same. Like, there's going to be a love for the Word of God. There's going to be love to be around the people of God. Like, these things are going to happen. And uh, it's just when you watch someone genuinely become a Christian, like there's nothing I don't think that is more mm. joyful than, than that. I remember we've talked about Grant Crane, but Grant Crane, mm-hmm. y'all may know him, like <clears throat> brilliant mind. And he came to our church thinking he was a Christian, like just grew up in a Christian home, thought he was a Christian. And he had a great upbringing. But when I talked, I remember talking to him at a, and he, he said that, he said that Jerry Edgar and I made him very uncomfortable. He said he wanted to avoid us in conversation because we were asking, I think, pointed <laughs> questions. I was asking about his conversion. And I remember leaving thinking, I don't know where this guy's at. Not sure. And then over time, to see God begin to work through, through our church, he got angry at me about getting emotional about the gospel. He was upset. He was like, Scott, just suck it up. He didn't say this to my face. But he was like, Scott, just suck it up. Just get through it. What's wrong with him? Uh, but then he, he became under conviction of sin, he, listening to a sermon in the lab. He's got, like, do all these chemicals, and he started to get emotional. He can't, like, wipe his eyes. He's got to go running to the bathroom emotional, take off his gloves to clean his, clean his hands. 
and all of a sudden he's converted. And this tremendous, dramatic conversion. I remember you, you called me late at night, I think it was, to tell me after a discussion group and you had him share, you know, Grant Crane's been converted, this is regeneration. And I remember, I was, I was just thrilled by it. And I remember talking to him, your ordination like party at your house. I talked to him in the line waiting for food mm -hmm. and just the very first conversation. Whole new man. A whole new man. Like this guy has been born again. He is a new creature in Christ. You could see it. And man, he had a love for the Bible. He had just, Jesus, and he grew like crazy. I mean, just, but that's the biblical understanding of it. It's not and now he's not avoiding you anymore. He's now he's avoiding me because I keep trying to get him to teach stuff. That's why I love that you say there is no boring thing. Going from dead to alive, are you kidding me? Like what's, there's not, that's never boring. That is the most thrilling thing, and that's what's brought us so much joy at, at our church um, or at school or wherever you see it, where someone thinks they're a believer, they become convicted by Scripture to say, uh-oh, I don't think I know the Lord Jesus after all, and God changes them, oh, it's the best. And uh, so uh, this is a really, number four here is really meaningful to us. And let, let me bring in the negative side here, the bad news side. So the, the, the negative side is popularly, especially in the Baptist denomination over the last hundred years, conversion has been what? It's come down the aisle, pray the prayer, you sign this card, meet with the pastor, and now guess what? You're saved without a doubt. There's no question about it. Never question it. Doesn't matter how you live from now on. You know, you're not saved by works. Once saved, always saved. And there's partial truths to what's being said, but there's also a very deceptive element of what's being said, which is your nature doesn't have to fundamentally change. Your loves uh, don't have to fundamentally change. What you value does not have to fundamentally change. How you live does not have to fundamentally change. Uh, you prayed the prayer, so you're good. And I think that teaching is perhaps the most detrimental false understanding in church. I don't know of a more damaging false understanding of anything in the Bible than that because it's so popular and it tricks, I mean, can I just, what second grader is not going to pray the prayer? You know, you just go to, like you said, you could convert every second grader. Just go into a second grade classroom, uh, a bunch of like seven-year-olds or whatever they are, and just say, hey, uh, heaven is where mommy and daddy and Jesus and everybody great is, and it's a great place, and there's this place called hell, and it's a horrible place of fire and torment, and that's where sinners go who haven't been forgiven, and all you've got to do is just pray, Jesus, come into my heart and save me. What seven-year-old is going to say, I, I don't think I'm going to pray that prayer? I mean, you, you, can, you can convert anybody through that. That's why, you know, I'm not trying to be silly, but like the drug addict down the street prayed the prayer when he was seven, and he thinks he's fine because he prayed and he received Christ, and once saved, always saved, and, and it doesn't matter the fact that he's living in complete flagrant sin or just bored with Jesus or whatever it may be for the rest of his life or her life, uh, I'm, I'm in because I prayed the prayer. I, I mean, I had just one extreme example. I won't give details, but I knew a Christian family, a great family in, in so many ways. But the son had rejected Christianity in college and become an agnostic, okay? He was also living with a girl he was not married to, and they were having kids, okay? Is he a Christian? No, he calls himself an agnostic. He's living in sin. The parents still held to the idea that he prayed the prayer when he was eight. They said, well, I think he's truly a believer because he prayed the prayer when he was eight years old. And so, yes, he's an agnostic living with his girlfriend, but we know once saved, always saved. I'm going, but was he ever saved? If he's now an agnostic living with his girlfriend, there is no evidence of conversion, just the opposite. This guy does not know the Lord, and he truly was converted a few years later, uh, radically converted. And he and his wife know the Lord, and they, they're raising godly children now. But, uh, man, uh, <laughs> we, we've got to have an accurate understanding of conversion to make any sense out of anything about church membership or church life. All right, number five. 
the bi- biblical understanding of evangelism. The way we evangelize speaks volumes about how we understand conversion and further what we understand about the good news. If we believe that people are essentially good and are seeking Jesus, we evangelize using half-truths and tend to elicit false conversions. When we present a watered-down gospel, we end up with a watered-down church. Uh, We need to be faithful to present the full gospel, the good news with the bad, and leave the results to God. Now, this is overlapping with what we've just said, but Greg, thoughts on on biblical evangelism? Um, Yeah, I mean, evangelism is simply sharing the good news about Jesus, who He is, what He's done, and then calling for the proper response. Um, and when we keep the, gospel, the biblical understanding of the gospel and conversion in mind, what that actually is, we realize God is the one who saves. We don't save people. Like, it is not our responsibility to save someone's soul. It is our responsibility to present the message that God will use to open their eyes to respond as they need to. Um, we must call people to faith and repentance. We must call them... To, to, you know, see Jesus for who he is, to acknowledge his lordship, to, you know, all those things. But ultimately, we, we can't bring that about through any technique, through any, um, you know, special sales manipulation practice. If we just word it just right and we get the lighting down and we, you know, we, we use the right tone of, like, we cannot force anyone to believe the gospel. Our responsibility is to present the gospel clearly, all of the gospel um, and call people to the proper response. Because that's why it says, when we present a watered-down gospel, we end up with a watered-down church, which is what I was talking about uh, before our little break. We get, and I'll add five to that, we get three through five wrong, then we get church wrong. We get three through five correct, and then we've set ourselves up to be in much more better position. Well, let me just keep going with that. So if we get three through five wrong, you know what we end up with? We end up with a ton of church members who are not actually Christians. So you, you have a watered-down gospel, you have a watered-down call to repentance, and you have a watered-down conversion story, and suddenly the whole church has, is full of members who don't actually know the Lord in a saving way. They haven't been transformed. So what do you get? You get carnal churches. You get backbiting and gossip and slander and people hating each other and division and people slandering each other and treating each other horribly in business meetings and stuff. There's like absolutely awful stuff going on. And they're, they're acting just like a group of non-Christians would act trying to work something out. They're just like, the, the, you know, I don't like the color of the carpet and we're at each other's throat. That's not the way Christians behave toward each other. It's just not. We, we, we don't do that. I mean, Christians can fail and slip up, but that's not the long-term way that Christians as a group uh, work together. And I, I have to say uh, that by God's grace, we have some amazing people in our church. I mean, just amazing church members. And I know you guys are getting to know people as as y'all are getting involved, but we we just have, uh, we are extremely blessed to have people who who I think truly love the Lord, love his word, and and want to be conformed to to a biblical view of of what sanctification looks like. I I think this one's more impactful for me because I used to be really good at the other way. I haven't talked about that a whole lot, but I was really good at getting people to pray the prayer. Oh, I was I was very good at bad evangelism. The second grader uh, thing. Yeah, I, I was <laughs> like I really was like I I could spin things in such a way that I could get a lot of people to respond mm. in the right way, and it was all about hey, I got this many people to pray that you know to receive Christ. I I saw this many people you know profess faith, whatever. Because um, you know again, for a lot of people, it's about numbers. The more the the more decisions you get for Jesus, the more successful you were, but you have no idea what the quality of those decisions actually were. Um, I was really good at doing this the wrong way. And so 
um, and then bearing the burden of that on my own self that if I didn't see the numbers that I saw at this point, mm -hmm. then like I must have done something wrong. I didn't. And it's like, no, like if we've presented the gospel faithfully, the whole gospel, and if somebody has not responded, that does not mean we fail to evangelize. It means they didn't believe God didn't open their eyes. So then Jesus would be a failure in evangelism yes, because absolutely. a lot of people forsook his message before he yeah. died. That, I think that's really good. I, it made me think of 2 Corinthians 5, 12, uh, 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what are, we are is known to God, and I hope it is known to you by your conscience. So we do persuade others, but it's not up to us to save them. And if it was, I'm pretty sure all of us are resigning here in 15 minutes and go drive the trash truck. <laughs> Or something with hand controls. If I I did drive the trash truck, but we're not going to hire Jerry. We're not going to change. That'd be scary for anybody getting the trash. But there, we're not going to continue to do it because the load of that, the guilt, the oh, that yeah. would be a burden mm -hmm. that we that I couldn't bear if it was up to us. And so we're so thankful to be able to persuade others but then leave the results to the Lord. And, and I, well said, Greg. Number eight. I was just saying, we, we just want to be faithful to throw the seed out. I think it's the, the parable of the soils or whatever in Mark's gospel. Yeah. I, I remember my dad's sermon on it. Like He gave an illustration about it, but he said the, the seed grows. He knows not how, I think is what it says. Where, like Dad said the Greek word is where we get the word automatically. The seed grows automatically. We just, want to, hmm. we just throw it out there. God's the one who's going to give the growth. And when he does, you just sit back. It's all glory. To the Lord, I remember like James Boyce at his James Boyce faithful minister died suddenly, and Eric Alexander, who's a wonderful preacher too, was speaking at his uh, at his funeral service, and he, he told a story about that he met this guy who was converted at James Boyce's church, just sitting there listening to the preaching of the word, and he was converted. And James Boyce was just like, "Wow, like that's amazing," and that's what happens. Like it's God who does it. You sit back at the end of the day, all glory be to Christ. Yeah, Jose, at yeah, listening. Yeah, Mark read, yeah. was reading Ephesians, and he's converted. That's so good. Yeah. He's coming to give his testimony in a few weeks. Yes, he is. Number eight. Scott, can you read that one? Yeah, concern for biblical discipleship and growth. We need to recover true discipleship, discipleship that causes Christians to live lives of increasing holiness. The emphasis on growth needs to be directed at holiness rather than membership. True discipleship producing strong, committed Christians will present a clear witness to the world. Let me say a word about this, and I know we all, we, we're very familiar, I'll put the Great Commission on the screen, we know the Great Commission probably, but let me just say a word because I think Kevin DeYoung wrote a book with Greg Gilbert called What is the Mission of the Church? And his argument is, to oversimplify, is this is the mission of the church. The Great Commission is the mission of the church. It's, it's, our, it's our ultimate priority that everything should sort of be submitted underneath. And just to look, I know we know it, but let's just look at it real quick. So it starts off with Jesus saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So the only way anyone is converted or is going to grow is because Jesus is author has authority. Jesus is going to work sovereignly to, to bring that about. Go therefore. So because Jesus has authority, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, uh, baptizing them. So baptism here would be a reference to conversion uh, in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then what's next? Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So Jesus is with us. He has all authority, so he can make this actually effective. And we are called to make disciples. And how does discipleship start? It starts with evangelism. A person is converted and baptized into the church in the name of the triune God. And then we don't stop at conversion. This is another thing. We can often think that because someone's converted, we just stop. Like, okay, we, successfully, we're done. We, we, we accomplished the job. No, that's the beginning of the work. Someone is converted, and now we've got a lifelong of 
We all need to be taught how to observe all that Jesus has commanded. That's a, I mean, how many areas do we fall short? I mean, pray without ceasing. How, how are we doing with these commands? So, so we, need to, we need a lifelong of, of, of growth and sanctification, teaching them to observe not some, but all that I commanded you. And this is the mar- these are the marching orders of Christ's church. So what we are here to do is we want all nations, people from all nations to come to know Christ, to be saved and to be baptized into the church. And then we want them to have a lifelong uh, experience of being taught how to observe all that God commands us to do uh, in his word. Uh, Jerry? Wouldn't you say when we plan into church even, we really want a heavy emphasis on discipleship. Uh, for sure on evangelism, but like you said, that's when the fun begins. As soon as they know the Lord Jesus, then we send them to Papa and let him <laughs> disciple folks. Hudson, you do know? you concur with the, yeah, the Papa? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so it's just one of those uh, it is a, uh, we love discipleship. We love discipleship. And, and but at, we don't ever want to um, not evangelize. We want to evangelize more and more. But boy, that is, once people come to love and know Christ, we want to pour into them. And it's not the end, like you said, it's the well, very beginning. Jerry, what is discipleship? Like, flesh it out yeah. a little bit more. What, what, oh, is yeah. the, what does that look like? Why is it so multifaceted? But, you know, just to study the word together to help someone grow together, to live life together, kind of like Scott was talking about when you start to love each other, um, well, pour into each other. I mean, I just think it goes on and on and on. The way Jesus discipled the 12, um, and then the, you know, especially with the, the inner circle of the three, that would be our greatest example in Scripture, I think, to see how we, how we go about it. But we just want to pour into folks the best we can. And in a way, we all kind of disciple each other a little bit, you know, and it's certainly you don't have to be further along to learn from someone who's a brand new believer. I remember someone said, you got to hang out with that baby saints. God treats them in a great way. So when Grant's converted, I want to spend time with that guy, right? You're going to learn a zeal there and you're going to learn so much from, so I think discipleship goes, it doesn't have to be, you know, you don't have to be 79 and a half like Papa is to be discipling, you know, and I know he feels like he learns as much from you, Hutzel, as you learn from him. It's such a neat, neat way the, the Lord does that. There's, I'm, I'm going to butcher this, so I'm going to modify it for my own use, but capturing everything you said, it's basically discipleship, if you boil it down, like taking all that you were saying, it's one disciple Helping another disciple trust and follow Jesus better. There you go. I mean, seriously. I mean, if I, I think if, if we, in, what you said didn't complicate it, but if we keep it simple like we're trying to do, it removes kind of this stigma that says, well, that's only for super spiritual Christians, no. those who are really <laughs> mature. No, discipleship is something all of us are doing in one way or another. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, anytime we talk with someone about the Bible, discipleship is taking place. We're encouraging that person to trust Jesus and follow him better through all that we're looking at and reading. So, I mean, it, it, is, an, it, it, it is not this massive, complicated thing. And that's the thing I love so much about North Avenue. If we have a fault, it's that we... We, we bend everything else into getting in the Word together as much as possible. Like, we try to remove as many roadblocks to that as we can because that's where it happens is when Christians get together around this book, we talk about it, we study it, we pray together. Like, that's when God really works, and I, that's what I love about this church. Like, we, we have so many people getting together to read the Word and study it. Like, it's, 
it's, it's, it's unusual to see it to the degree that we have. But I think, you know, by God's grace, that speaks to the fact that that is what is important. And that's what we have to keep doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I feel like our church is, does a great job at this. I mean, you told the story of Robin Krause met with younger moms. They met at Dairy Queen, I think mm-hmm. it was. And they, mm-hmm. they gather around Robin Krause and ask her questions about parenting and, and learn. This discipleship is happening mm-hmm. right there. And there's four yeah. adult children who are all walking with the all Lord. believers. Yeah, which and, is amazing. And she's, I mean, she's told some, she had some great stories about, she bought this special thing to discipline them with. She'd pull, she'd just pull it out of her purse and like warn them. It was like a rubber thing that would yeah. slap. Um, just a little, like Josh Cross the sight of it, you know, yeah. give him fear. But it's just stuff like that. When she's discipling, she's helping. I think of way back early on, a bunch of guys were gathered together at Josh Cross's parents' house, I think, and they were sitting around a, a campfire maybe or something like that. And Manuel, who's not here anymore, wonderful member of our church, Manuel Fierro, asked Bruce Hakama. He said, what is one, one thing that you worried about before you got married that you shouldn't have? And Bruce Hakama said, without hesitation, he said, finances. God has been faithful to provide finances. That has stuck in my mind. I heard it yeah. secondhand from Manuel, and I've quoted this to multiple people. There's discipleship happening you know, around a campfire. And I just, I love our church that so much discipleship. Like, like Greg is saying, people love the word and are pouring over the word, asking questions. It happens in lines. It happens at tables. It happens outside of church. Mm-hmm. I, just, I just feel like when our church first started, there's a video with Ian. He looks like a child in that video, <laughs> and he talks about discipleship with this vision for our this church. before the church started? Before yes. the church started. You have that video. I need we to do, see that. It's on YouTube. He looks like a kid, and he's talking about <laughs> discipleship going on down. And like, Lord's been faithful to. That's what's happened. I love that. It's that, like you said, everybody does it in a different way. I don't think there's just one way to do it. Chronic does it through lifting weights. Those guys oh, yeah. are all over there Friday night. Yep. And they're yeah. lifting, and they are talking about the word. They're probably talking about all kinds of stuff. But it's it's the kind of the doing life together in such a way that they're building each other up, they're loving each other, they're, they're growing in um, just multi-faceted ways. And we should move on, but I'm, I'm gonna go one more story. So uh, you mentioned the working out, I gotta, I gotta, cause if y'all haven't heard this, this is so good. So Ian Webster, our, our, uh, he calls himself a music director. That's, the, that's a good term. So he's the music director. I always call him worship leader. He's like, I'm not the worship leader. That's the Holy Spirit or something. So I'm like, okay, okay. He was a music director. Uh, he, he's the music director of our church. And he, years ago, he and Josh Chronic were uh, hanging out. Now, if you don't know Josh Chronic, uh, believe you it or not, to. at the time, this is a while ago, this is like eight, nine years ago, Josh Chronic was, was a false convert. He was not a real Christian. And um, Ian kind of picked up on this, okay? Ian kind of knew something wasn't quite right here. So he started hanging out to work out with Josh Chronic every, uh, a lot, several times a week. And Ian would start talking about spiritual things and talking about scripture. And over a period of, I don't know, months, Josh Chronic starts coming to our Bible study and he starts volunteering to pray and he starts sounding really different than, than he used to. And Josh Chronic is converted. So Ian and Josh move in together to an apartment. Ian comes downstairs, Josh Chronic is on the couch reading Philippians, trying to memorize Philippians. He's read it over and over and over again. He has dyslexia too, so it's a hard time for him to read, but he's, he's like, if I, can't, if I can't read well, I'm just gonna memorize it. That's what he's <laughs> So he's like, I'm gonna memorize Philippians. I was like, hey, that, that's pretty good. So um, he's doing that. So then Josh Chronic starts working out with a guy named Sam Kazimi, who you probably know from our church. Sam Kazimi is an agnostic when they start working out together. Not a Christian at all, like not even close to a Christian. Uh, he, 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 he starts working out with Josh. Josh gives him a Bible for Christmas. Give the agnostic a Bible for Christmas. Merry Christmas, here's a Bible, which is awesome. So Sam thought he would honor Josh because you know, he gave him the Bible. He's serious about his religion, you know, his religion. So he's like, okay, I'll read it. So he starts reading Matthew, Mark, and Luke. 
He realizes there's some repetition between these books. He's like, these are similar. He gets to Luke, and and this is months into them talking. He gets to the crucifixion account in Luke's gospel, and Sam the agnostic starts to weep over the death of Jesus. He's like, I don't know what's going on. He said, Josh, I was crying reading your Bible that you gave me last night. I don't know what's going on. And soon afterwards, Sam is converted, like like legitimately full-on converted. His wife, uh, uh, Carrie, who's a member of our church now, she was a nominal Christian. She married a non-Christian. You know, she she wasn't going to church in 20 years. She was not walking with the Lord. She sees the transformation of her agnostic husband to a radically devoted Christ follower, and she gets convicted about six months later that she's not really converted. She's meeting with Josh Cronick's wife, Haley, uh, they're reading Ephesians together. She's convicted. I don't think I'm a, I'm a real Christian. My husband now, the agnostic, is like loving the Lord. I don't really think I love the Lord. She's converted radically. We got to baptize them here at church. They both joined our church, and he and Josh and Sam still work out all the time. And guess what they're doing now? It's discipleship. And other guys get incorporated into that. I mean, how awesome is that? That's amazing uh, how the Lord uses just regular everyday stuff and talking about Jesus while you're working mm. out, and suddenly there's multiple conversions that come through that. So, we didn't have time for that story, but there we go. Uh, number nine. Mark has never done the, the working out thing. <laughs> working out evangelists. That's <laughs> all I do. All I do, we just, we pump the iron and we, we go. That's, that's yeah, a, yeah. Scott and I, that's our workout program is we evangelism. Uh, well, that would not go well. I would have come to that. I, would get the, I think I could get the bar. I think I could get the bar up a couple of times. That'd be good. At school, I make jokes about this too. The students can't get enough of my mocking myself about how I can't work out. I shouldn't tell another story. Jerry, when I was in 11th grade, I was in a workout class with his brother at school. Okay, this is true. This is great. His brother, Mike, if you don't know Mike, he's hilarious. He's fantastic. Um, Mike has got me as he's the, you know, the workout instructor. And he's looking at me going, why are you in this class? And all my, I had like a buddy of mine bench pressing like 245, and I'm like, not quite there. Okay. So in the middle of the, this is in the middle of one of the, uh, maybe late fall semester, his brother just says to me one day, no joke, he goes, Mark, you, you shouldn't be in the workout class. I'm like, first of all, how dare you? How dare you? No, I said, okay, fine. I'm, uh, what, do, what is your plan? He said, why don't you become the teacher's aide in Bible with this, with my brother? And it literally changed the course of my life. So he sent me to become his teacher's aide for my last year and a half of high school. And then um, we haven't stopped. You spent uh, a couple more years <laughs> after in Gaul Ancient. That's exactly right. It's like a four-year deal. Right I, don't, I don't know if this church would have ever happened had Mike not mm, sent me out of the weightlifting class. So, it's got um, providential. Can I, can I, I, I got to say something about that, though. Like, who would have thought that a simple suggestion like that? I mean, it, it is absolutely funny. and I'm, oh, yeah. But, like, go, go, be Mr., go be my brother's teacher's aide. Like, who knew what God was going to do through that? I uh, know. Uh, but he knew you, and he said, this might be a better fit for you. Literally changed my life. Absolutely changed my life. I mean, that is so life. amazing. And it's like, just, you know, get to, and get to know people. Get to know people. And, you know, if you see an opportunity for someone that's going to be better than what you're giving them, get them to that opportunity. Because look at North Avenue. Praise the yeah. Lord. Well, and it literally changed your life. It changed my life because then I was done teaching. Because all I did did turn it over to Mark. If he's in there, I can let him go at it. The moral of the story is, if you're working out, people can get saved. And if you leave working out, God can still use that too. That's the moral of the story. Josh Cronick better not be listening right now. We'd be in trouble. All right. We've got to move on. Number nine. Is that where we are? Oh, yeah. The last one. Scott, can you read that one? Biblical church leadership. Or Greg, maybe you got yeah, it. Yeah, I'll, I'll take it. Over. Um, it says, until recent times, almost all Protestants agreed that in church government, there should be a plurality of elders, which means that there should be an office of elder and not merely one or more pastors in positions of leadership. This is a biblical and practical model 
that has fallen out of favor in modern times. Greg, why don't you start us off? Yeah, I mean, I go back to uh, the Greg Wills book that you mentioned and just the, the shift that took place before and then after the Civil War mm -hmm. in terms of elder-led congregations. I mean, that used to be the norm for Baptist churches. Absolutely. Um, and it's, it's coming back into favor more, I think, because people are seeing, like, they're actually studying the Bible and they're not just taking somebody's word for it. Um, but elder, you know, there, there is so much help for a church when you don't have just one guy doing it all, mm -hmm. bearing that burden, when that, when that burden of leadership, and, it, and it, when I say burden, that's not like in a negative sense. There's a weightiness, a responsibility that comes with being in the position we're in. Like being able to share that like with other brothers is, is so, so huge because these guys have strengths that I don't have. They have giftings that I don't have. They're able to impact the church in ways that I can, and by God's grace, I can do some things that maybe I do a little bit better than them. Um, but like, you know, we, we, we balance each other out, we complement each other, um, and it's good for you, uh, it's good for the, for the whole church because it keeps us accountable from going off on some crazy, you know, just like with expositional preaching, like when, the, when we're subject to the text, like we, we have to go with the text. When, when there's more than one of us, we can't just go any direction we want. Yeah. Like we, we do it together or we don't do it. And I mean, but there's so much health in that um, because in a plurality of counselors or in a multiple, you know, multiple counselors, there's wisdom. Um, when we have a plurality of elders leading, man, it, it, it keeps us in the right place. It nourishes us. It strengthens us. It, it keeps us focused, but it's also good for the church um, because you see there's, there's more than one person that you can go to. It's not just all about, I mean, Mark, like we're thankful and like want to do nothing but champion you and your gifts. I would be in um, enormous trouble if I was the only elder. Oh but, my you goodness. Know, it's like you, you have your, like, that's what you do, man. And it's like, I praise God for that. Um, and we can encourage you in that. And you don't have to bear that burden alone though. You know what I'm saying? It's not just Mark up there preaching all by himself every, I mean, he's the one preaching, but it's like, we are always communicating, talking about Sunday oh, school, yeah. and like if I have a thought, like I'll say, "Hey," da da da, and like so. I mean, there's a constant dialogue. I, I, just and, yeah. can I chime in here because because I, I can't tell you how many times we, we're working on a decision, and I can think of a specific illustration. Scott uh, goes against what the three the three of us were thinking, and it was definitely the right thing. Yep. And I was like, if Scott hadn't been there, the three of us would have made a decision that I think was less than as wise as it could have been. Or I can think of uh, dealing with some stuff with eschatology. Greg's help to me was enormously helpful several years ago. So I mean, you, you go back and forth. There's unique gifts that people contribute. And I'm like, man, had that person not been there at that moment, the whole church would have moved an inch in a bad direction. Like it would have, been, it would have not have been, has been as good a direction as another way. So the, the, the Lord is so gracious to give a plurality, I think. Jerry, thoughts on the plurality? Yeah, it's just, it's, it's great. I, I think oftentimes how you said that to be the only pastor would be... Oh, it's a nightmare. ...would be really, really hard, and the burden would be... So, no, I love that, the camaraderie. So where it says it's biblical and practical, I, I think we've seen that. And let me just show some verses. You don't have to turn. They're on the screen if you want to just look at it. But here's an example. Acts 14, 23, Paul and the others, says, when they had appointed... Now, elders... Now, you see the word elder is plural elders for them in every church. Do you see how there's a plurality of elders in every church? So they appointed plural elders in each church. 
Uh, that's all over the New Testament. Titus 1.5, this is why I left you in Crete, the island of Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders. Again, it's in the plural, in every town. The assumption is each town has one church at this time, so every single church has multiple elders. Uh, you can look at Acts 20. <clears throat> From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus, so it's one church, and he called the elders, plural of the church, singular, to come to him, and they came to him. So everywhere you look in the New Testament, there's no exception. Whenever you hear about elders of a church, it's always plural. You never hear in the New Testament of a single elder-led church. It doesn't exist. In the, I mean, we don't hear of it in the New Testament. Every single time you hear about it, it's elders of one church. Uh, that's over and over and over again. And uh, a quick word about that. Oh, elders and deacons. Let's say a quick word about the difference between elders and deacons. Scott, what's... Greg, you want to... Um, all right. Very quickly, elders according to scripture, are the authority in the church, deacons are servants. Deacons do not sit in a place of any authority, um, which is often the case in so many Baptist churches. Right. Um, it's you've got the single solo pastor and the board of deacons who actually function more as elders than deacons, kind of, and sometimes kind of a hybrid thing. But in scripture, there is a sharp distinction between the, the office of elder and the office of deacon. You go to Acts chapter, uh, is it six, seven, mm -hmm. where you've got the issue in the early church, um, and there's this need for service. And what do the apostles say? You know, we need to devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. So we're going to appoint seven guys who can take care of these material needs. And so I think that's kind of the institution, the, the separation between the office of those who are in a position of teaching and authority and those who are serving. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, those who serve have to have certain criteria, certain, you know, uh, marks of godliness and maturity and stuff like that. But the, the primary difference, if you looked at 1 Timothy 3, is the office of elder, you have to be able to teach. Yep. You have to be able to teach to be an elder. You don't have to be able to teach to be a deacon. Um, deacons are servants in the church. Elders are the ones God has appointed to be the leaders and the shepherds in the congregation. I think the one sentence answer you said that deacons serve with their hands and elders serve with their mouths. Is that what you said? Right. Which is very yeah, simple. Elders serve with their words, deacons serve with their hands. That's right. Mm. And, and 1 Timothy 5.17 on the screen here also is pretty clear. Let the elders, and then you've got two job descriptions here, who rule well, so that's, that's authority, uh, be worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So you've got the, the issue of authority, and you've got the issue of teaching or preaching. Those are the, that's very lovely, isn't that? Uh, th those are the two kind of job descriptions of an elder. Th those are the two big things. And uh, ruling and authority, um, and deacons, of course, are not required to be able to teach. They, they, it's more of a servant position. We could say more, but let's move on. Um, let's go now to our statement of faith. I would just say, I mean, just to throw it out there, we have probably two of the best deacons Oh, yeah, yeah, I, mean, I, would put, I would put Ian and Zach up against any other deacon. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. They serve. Oh, they're incredible. They are absolutely incredible. So, statement of faith, uh, we, could, we could spend all day on this thing, but for the sake of time, I want to look at a few things in particular. You can take time to read over these uh, uh, later on. Let's go to, uh, I think it's the second page, statement of theological distinctives. Do you see the bottom of the second page, statement of theological distinctives, number two? And you've got five things listed there. We could probably add a six to that, uh, which we'll mention. But um, we want to walk through these uh, five, really six things. So when we say distinctives, we don't necessarily mean that you have to believe these specific things to be a Christian or even to join our church, per se. But these are the things that will be taught at our church. Does that make sense? So this is what we'll be, what we'll be taught. And uh, we'll start with the first one, which is the centrality of the gospel in daily life. Scott, why don't you say a word about that? Yeah, I mean, this is huge. I love this topic, too. And if Jerry Bridges is the guy I recommend on this topic, almost anything he's written, he's going to come back to the gospel again and again. Mm -hmm. But what Bridges would say is, 
Someone gets converted by the gospel, and then you, you put the gospel on the shelf. You put it aside, and you think, now you, you live. Uh, and but Bridget would say, you're, what you're doing is you're removing the power to live faithfully. You're, you're removing basically the engine, uh, the locomotive of the train, and you say, now, now go on your own street. Well, you can't. It's impossible. Like, you've got to have the gospel again and again, and, and the gospel keeps us from the good day, bad day mentality. It keeps us from becoming prideful. It keeps us from becoming despairing, like in our sin. It's the gospel. And I would just say, the gospel, every time you, if you're a genuine Christian, to hear the gospel afresh is to move you afresh. Like it's, it's just, you're never going to get to the bottom of, you're never going to get tired of hearing the gospel message. And so we, we want to just, I mean, every day I approach God as a practicing sinner. That's what Bridges says. And, and you just remind yourself that my sins have been cast as far as the east is from the west. And just the basic gospel message motivates you to, to want to love your children better, want to love, do, your, do your job better. So yeah, we got to have the gospel. On the screen, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 is a classic verse on this. Paul is talking not to non-Christians. He's talking to Christians at a church. And what does he say? I want to remind you of the gospel, which I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. So you look at the order here. First, you receive it, but then you live your whole life standing on it, and you're being saved by it if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. So the gospel is for Christians. It's not just for non-Christians. It's something that we live in. We stand in it. We are saved by it. And uh, we don't ever want to minimize that in the Christian life. Uh, number two here on our sheet, <clears throat> divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Now, Jerry, we've, we've spent a whole lot of weeks on this in Sunday school. This is the, one of the longest series we've mm -hmm. done before of a topical nature. Can, you, can yeah. you say a word about what this is that we believe? Yeah, we, certainly we believe God's sovereign, laced all throughout Scripture, but that doesn't make man any less responsible. And so... Um, you know, I know I have 10 pages of New Testament promises that talk about God's sovereignty primarily. I have 15 pages of New Testament commands of what are we supposed to do. Um, so they're both, they go hand in hand. We don't want, it's not like a 50-50 deal where it's like he's a little bit of both and we are too um, responsible. I believe it's 100% of each. God's 100% of the time sovereign. We're 100% responsible. And um, yeah, I know that adds up to 200, but in Scripture, there's uh, one doesn't uh, um, lose any substance because of the other. That's good. I mean, a verse we've talked about recently, uh, Genesis 50, 20, Joseph to his brothers, as for you, <clears throat> you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And just that, that word meant is the same Hebrew word used twice in that verse. You intended, purposed, meant evil against me. God intended, purposed, meant it, him being sold into slavery, for good. And so uh, God is totally sovereign, even over uh, terrible things that happens. He's untouched by the evil of it. But um, we are still responsible for what we do. Yeah, I mean, I would just say, I've talked about Jerry before, but I'm so thankful for Jerry. Like, was it almost 40 years, right, in the wheelchair? Oh, man, we're right near the 40-year. Right year. near the 40-year mark. How close are we? Uh, November 18. Wow. So coming up very, very soon. In yeah. Six, six, seven weeks, something like that. Uh, he's been almost 40 years in a wheelchair. 17, he breaks his neck. And God, that's one of, you would say that's one of the best days of your life when, when mm -hmm. you broke your neck. You're on the field. He's 17. And you said you're about to go deep with God. I mean, that's just extraordinary. And you said that you had the most peace maybe you've ever had in your life. Like God just gave you this incredible peace. Mm -hmm. I'm just thankful that you've taught on this over and over and over again where it just, it just soaks into the people. Our people just believe this. God is sovereign. He is good. So I'm, I'm thankful for that Jerry has modeled and taught this so, so well. Any word about the 40 years, Jerry? Uh, they've been great. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, I, and I would say that, you know, when you're talking about that peace, the peace that surpasses all understanding, that is exactly what it is. You can't really explain that. It wasn't, 
it, it, thinking back on it, I don't know that it should have been peaceful, but it sure, sure was. But, uh, but you know, he, he began that work, carries on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So that's why every day is better. Um, not necessarily circumstantially, but realistically, it's just getting better each day. So I, don't, I think that should keep us from uh, whining or complaining about all our issues. Is, is your argument that besides your conversion and your marriage and the birth of your yeah. children, besides those days, the, your, your, the most important day or the best day of your life was breaking your neck? I do think so just because of the sanctification, you know, that God used that. He's used a hundred other things too, you know, daily things. But that was the biggest thing they used to probably weed out my dependent on myself and to give me a greater dependence on the Lord Jesus. I mean, I, I've never heard of anyone who would say that, you know, about something like that. So it's, it's absolutely amazing to see God's work uh, through that. Number three here on our list of distinctives, the complementary roles of men and women. I will just say that th this is obviously uh, always a hot button issue, but I would say uh, it cooled off a little bit for a period of time in the evangelical reform world, and now it's heating back up again in terms of the controversy here. Uh, we are seeing, so, okay, we won't go through the whole history, but John Piper and Wayne Grudem had a big book put together called Biblical Manhood and Womanhood back in, I don't know, is it the 80s when that came out? Yeah, <clears throat> and they coined the term complementarian, as in we complement each other. And um, that term became, uh, God worked greatly through this movement, and a lot of people became complementarian, believing there's distinct roles for men and women, but God has made them both equal in dignity, value, and worth. But God has called men to lead in the home. They're heads of their wives. Wives are called to gladly submit to and follow the leadership of their husbands, Ephesians 5. First uh, Timothy 2 and 3 would say that God has called uh, men who qualify to be pastors of churches, but he restricts that from women. Uh, women are not allowed to teach or exercise authority over men in the, in the church because God has called men to lead in a humble, godly, gracious way. And so that's obviously going to be contentious all over the place. But right now, the complementarian movement has been watered down with narrow and broad complementarianism. And basically what this looks like is you end up having uh, people arguing for women preaching sometimes under the authority of the elders. So uh, kind of a Beth Moore type situation where she will be preaching on Mother's Day, a 50-minute expositional sermon to a group of men and women on a Sunday. That's not okay. That's disobedience to 1 Timothy 2.12. Uh, she ended up leaving the SBC over this movement. Then you have more subtle forms of this showing up where... Uh, I won't necessarily name names at the moment, but you, you have people arguing that women should be highly involved in, regularly in elders' meetings. Uh, I'll, I'll say Jen Wilkins' name. Okay, Jen Wilkin. Okay, I know she's, she's got a lot of good Bible studies, but she's arguing that women should be highly involved in elders' meetings. And I want to say, okay, did she, when, she talk, when she's being interviewed about how the village church, Matt Chandler's church works, she will say, we formulated this doctrinal statement, and we distributed it to our church, and we picked this curriculum, and we decided this and that. She's talking like an elder. She's talking like she's a pastor at the church. You can go listen to the most recent interview that the Gospel Coalition did with her. It's not good. Uh, and, and she just stepped down from, from, she's moving on to other things. She just stepped down from Village just past Sunday, I believe. But, but she, she's, she literally is speaking of the teaching of the church as something that we are doing, and she's speaking as if she was functionally an elder. And I'm going, wait a second. Uh, that, that you may not have the title, but you're still taking the role. And so uh, even though people are still using the term complementarianism, it's becoming a kind of watered-down egalitarianism. Greg, thoughts on, on this issue? Um, I'm going to draw from Al Mohler on this. He's made the comment many times that when it comes to the office of elder, the function is the office and the office is the function. You can't exactly. separate the two. So whether you, you, you say, well, it's not the official office. If someone is functioning in that way, that's what they are. Right. Um, and here's the problem. And again, I, I don't want to pick on the village church. I mean, but like they're, they're just a, a public example of where you go wrong on this is we want our structure itself to reflect what the Bible says. We don't want to go 
uh, beyond that. Um, and what they have is they have their elders, which are all men, right. but then they have like an executive leadership team, which is made of men and women, who functions alongside the elders and making decisions Meet the with church. the elders, make and doctrinal so decisions just together. And so backdoored right. people who are unqualified. And again, like if you understand what Scripture says, you can't do this. But they've given a backdoor to allow um, for basically female elders, um, which... Scripture does not allow, and if you understand the office is the function, the function is the office, um, then you, you just can't go there. But it's also, we, we, we have to be careful with this not to want to, to please the culture. The culture's on a big kick now with equality, everything. You can be whatever you want to be, no matter what you started out. You can be this, that, and the other, just because that's what you feel like you should be. And so the church has capitulated to that mindset in some ways in this kind of particular instance where it's like, well, we know you can't technically if, you know, cert only certain people can be elders, but we're, you know, they got this gift and we want them to use that gift. And so let's make sure that we, we backdoor them in so they're not officially that, but they can still be that. And it's like, that, that is circumventing Scripture, let, let me let me Let me give a couple of things here, because people will sometimes bring these up. And I, I want to say these clearly and just tick through these texts real quick on the screen. Titus 2 is very clear that women should teach, but it's a certain kind of way. So Titus 2, 3, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. So it is absolutely not just okay, but it's commanded that older women teach and train younger women in, those, in these kinds of ways. Second Timothy, Paul mentions the faith of Paul's grandmother, Lois, and his mother, Eunice. Remember, Timothy's dad was a Gentile, not a Christian. So he had a, a grandmother, Lois, and his mother, Eunice, who trained him in the faith. And look at 2 Timothy 4, a couple chapters later. He says, but as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned. He didn't learn it from his dad. And have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. That would be his mother and grandmother. And knowing how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. It is absolutely right. It's just so obvious. Women teaching children, boys and girls, is absolutely right and good. We have Leah uh, Petty teaching uh, my son Micah right now, and uh, uh, your, Michael will be in there soon. But like, that's absolutely right and good. And one more example would be Acts 18. He, Apollos, had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of, concerning Jesus, though, and here's the problem, he only knew the baptism of John. So Apollos' theology was inadequate. So look what happens. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila, this is the wife and husband, when they heard him, they took him aside. Now notice they did this in private, and they explained to him the way of God more accurately. So the wife was involved in instructing this man, Apollos, in private, but the, this is not some sort of formal teaching. This is a take him to the side in an appropriate way, husband and wife together, helping instruct him. And Apollos was humble, and he learned from them, and he corrected his theology. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, um, uh, there, there are women in, in our church who have emailed me or contacted me privately and have asked me about some theology and have even corrected some of the things I've said. Absolutely thankful for that. I think that's the appropriate and right way to do it. So we're not saying women don't contribute in the teaching area in the church. They contribute in all kinds of ways to the church. But in terms of teaching the gathered body, uh, preaching, teaching gathered bodies of men and women in that kind of way, we do think First Timothy um, restricts that pretty clearly. Anything else on that? I, mean, I just think that I always say this. I think that it's so countercultural. But I think well, we don't want to come to the Bible and say, like, how can the Bible say this? No, we come underneath the Bible and I want to humbly submit to whatever the Bible says, I want to submit to it. Like that, that's, I think that's fundamentally one of the big issues is more like, I, this can't be, this guy, and there's got to be some other way, and you're, we're not coming humbly underneath and just submitting. I want to obey this. Whatever it says, I, you know, I want to believe it. 
And again, we don't have time for this, but one more quick thing. Is it, Hutzel, you got a question? Yeah, I don't have any problem with, uh, with I mean, done in an appropriate context in an appropriate way. I've got no problem at all with, uh, with uh, say, in college, as a girl sitting next to a guy who's an atheist, and she shares the gospel with him. I don't see any pro I see that in the Acts 18 sort of uh, light of things. Uh, it would be different if she gathered together a group of students, men and women, and got up and taught a message verse by verse or something like that. So yeah, I, th I think that's a totally legitimate thing to do. Um, one other quick note on that would be, in Genesis... God made Adam first, then Eve, and Paul sees theological significance in that. And then, then Adam and Eve sin together. We all know they sin together. Technically, Eve eats the fruit first, but Adam is failing in leadership at that moment. He's being passive. But when they fall, remember, God comes into the garden in the cool of the day, and he doesn't say, Adam and Eve, where are the two of you? There's a Hebrew word for you, plural, y'all. <laughs> and there's a Hebrew singular, you, you singular. And God uses the singular Hebrew term for you. When he goes into the garden, he doesn't say, Adam and Eve, where are the two of you? He goes into the garden, even though Adam could have said, she ate the fruit first. What happened? Adam, where are you singular? You know what that tells you? The primary responsibility in the home for whatever's going on rests in the husband's lap, which is a terrifying thought for all men. It's mm -hmm. like, if there's a problem in the home, if God knocks on the front door and your wife answers the door, he will say, nice to see you. Can I speak to the man of the house? Because if there's trouble, God deals with Adam first. That is a, again, it's not a right of privilege. It's a burden of responsibility. Both in the home and in the church, God has called men to lead, and that means responsibility, not privilege. It's, it's talking about a burden here of responsibility, not a right of privilege that it's so often caricatured to be. All right, uh, number four, uh, we believe in believer's baptism by immersion after conversion. Um, just one quick verse on this on the screen. Verse, I'll skip to verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. We think here, there's many other verses we could go to. Do you see how faith is linked to baptism in this verse? This is why we, we don't believe in infant baptism. Although we respect and love many Presbyterians so much, uh, Scott and I grew up in a wonderful Presbyterian church, and we, we have nothing but wonderful things to say about the PCA, but on this issue, we would disagree. We would say, no, you're buried with him in baptism, and you're raised through faith, and it's not the faith of the parent. It's not the faith of the pastor. It's the faith of the person being baptized. And so we believe baptism is for those who are believers, and that baptism should come after uh, faith in Christ. For the sake of time, let me move on here to number five. The relationship of God's glory to man's joy. Scott, no, give us... No, I want, no, I want to hear from you, you Scott. Come on, out, come on, give us a word. This is give us a word. <laughs> no, I, I want to hear from someone else. Jerry, give us a word on the connection. Oh, I want to go back to you. <laughs> a, de <laughs> a decade ago, this was Mark's... Uh, man, <laughs> this is all I talked yeah, about for like three years. Exactly right. <laughs> so I... I okay. Uh, just a quick word is... I support uh, them. <laughs> The verse on the screen, Psalm 63, verse 5. I think this is my wife's favorite psalm. Uh, it's a great psalm. My soul will be satisfied. So you got satisfaction in the Lord. As with fat and rich food in my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Do you see how they go together? When you are delighting in God, your life is going to glorify God. Whatever you find greatest satisfaction in is what your mouth is going to praise. Like you, you find some teenager who's obsessed with some new band, right? What do they talk about all day? You got to hear this new band. You got to hear this new song. I got students who will come up to me and tell me certain things. You got to see this movie. Whatever excites us is going to be on our mouth. It's going to be shaping our lives. And uh, how much more so should it be 
the Lord himself. If we delight in him, our, our, our lives will reflect that and we will glorify him with how we live. Let's move on here. I'm going to add a sixth distinctive that's not on the list. Uh, cessationism. Greg, do we not believe the Holy Spirit is active today? What do we believe about the Holy Spirit? We believe the Holy Spirit is very active today um, in many, many ways, but only in the ways that Scripture clearly says He is. So when we say uh, we are convictionally, and I like that, cessationist, what we mean is there are certain supernatural, miraculous sign gifts of the Holy Spirit that were evident in the early church, such as speaking in tongues, prophecy, you know, healing, stuff like that, that were necessary for that first generation of Christians as the apostles were teaching and preaching. It was confirming their message and their ministry. But once the deposit of the apostles, their teaching is now uh, completed through their generation, and we have that here in Scripture, um, those miraculous sign gifts, tongues, prophecy, healings, all of that, those have ceased, hence the word cessationist, okay? Um, so we do not expect, nor do we encourage, the practice of speaking in tongues, prophetic utterances. Uh, we do not believe God gives individuals the gift of healing anymore. Does God still heal? Yes, God does heal, but through the prayers of his people, according to his sovereign will, it's not as if someone says, I have the gift of healing in the name of Jesus. You have this in, in your now. That's not how it works anymore. Those gifts have ceased. They say that in opposition to what is called the continuationist perspective, which means those gifts are still continuing in the church today. It, it is not an issue over which I, we will judge someone's salvation, but it is right. important enough to say, um, if that's what you're expecting at North Avenue, you're not going to see it uh, because Scripture does not lead us to expect those gifts. Um, how does the Holy Spirit work? He works providentially through all kinds of circumstances and things, and then most specifically through the Word of God, whereby he brings conviction of sin, he brings new life, um, he encourages, he strengthens, he equips, um, and he empowers for ministry. But we are not looking, nor will we expect, any of the things that you'll see in Pentecostal churches and even some of our Reformed Charismatic, like Sovereign Grace churches and stuff like that. Uh, we love them, love their music, but on this, this issue, we believe they're in error. And I know we are two hours in, and it's a Saturday morning, so this is not the time to do this, but I'm going to do it real quick. Okay, so just on the screen, I'm going to give a very short argument for cessationism. This is what you came for, okay? This is what you came This is a 90-second argument to just add to what Greg's saying. Uh, this is the, the most succinct version I can do is, is how it works in Ephesians. So just follow me here. Here's, here's the, the argument relies on, on one basic idea. The, the phrase apostles and prophets repeats three times in the book of Ephesians. I think all three times it's referring to the same groups and I think it gives us major insight on this difficult issue. Here we go. So then you, the church, are no longer, or Gentile Christians in particular, are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, that's his church, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So we would say the church is built like a temple on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. I'm going to argue in just a second these are New Testament prophets, not Old Testament prophets, and these are New Testament apostles because there's only New Testament apostles. So just stick with me here. And they, they lay the foundation of the church. Okay, very next chapter of Ephesians. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known. Now listen, it was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, that's Old Testament, 
as it has now, New Testament, been revealed through the holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This has to be New Testament prophets, and it's obviously New Testament apostles. Everybody got that? So here's the part where I think it's really interesting is chapter 4. Jesus, when he ascended, gave to the church gifts. The apostles, the prophets, same groups, right? The evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. I would argue that everyone who is even a Christian at all is already a cessationist when it comes to one of these gifts. Apostles. No one thinks the gift of apostleship is still happening. There's no living apostle today. Once John died in the 90s AD, there were no more apostles. So every Christian who's not a heretic, no offense here to anybody, if you, no one thinks there's living apostles today. That's craziness. So the, the Mormons do, but not us. Uh, they would say, okay, all the apostles are gone. They, that ended at the end of the first century. True. They, they still have 12 today. Never mind. So we believe this gift has ended. And I would argue, since these two gifts are linked throughout the book of Ephesians as foundations for the church, because they spoke inspired revelation from God that we have, we have recorded in the New Testament writings that are here for all time as the foundation for all the church, we would say that not only did the inspired speech gift that came with apostles, not only did that cease, but the, the inspired speech gift of prophecy also ceased. Once the foundation of God's word was laid and the New Testament was finished, these gifts are no longer needed because we have what, we, what, what they need from them in the New Testament. Evangelists, shepherds, and teachers still continues, but we would argue those two gifts of, of uh, apostles and prophets and tongues goes with that have, have ceased with the early church. All right, we are almost out of time, but Greg, it's a tradition. Oh gosh, I know it is. We always ask Greg at the end to, to, to explain the Trinity in 60 seconds or less. And it's right, hold, my, on, hold on, hold on. I'm, can I'm I, can gonna we actually, time it? I'm going to time it. This yeah, is going to be. I want to see if I can do this. Um, I came for this moment. This is what I come for every time. I love to hear the 60 second. <laughs> oh, goodness. You have a, you have a clock? Okay. I, I do, right here. Okay. All right, we're going to see if he sticks to it, okay? Oh, goodness. I, th I think I went over a little bit. I think last you were like time. 20 seconds over last time. Yeah, That's so unacceptable, Greg. We are sticking to 60 seconds today. Okay. Um, go. The Trinity. Uh, the word is not found in the Bible, but uh, the scripture points us, pushes us to believe that God is one. There's one God, and yet he, he exists eternally as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three divine persons in one divine nature. Um, the Father is not the, the Son or the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Son or the Father. The Son is not the Father or the Spirit. They remain distinct, and yet there's only one God. There's not three gods. There's not, it's not God moving in and out of divine phases or in and out of divine modes. One moment I'm this, one moment I'm that. Um, he's all three at the same time. It's not like a guy who's a father, a grandfather, and a son. That's mm -hmm. still just one person. Those three aspects of him don't have a relationship with one another. Scripture's clear. The Father is truly, fully, eternally God. So is the Son, and so is the Spirit. Um, and uh, we see that at work in our salvation. The Father authors, the Son accomplishes, the Spirit applies. Boom. What? 54 seconds. That, that deserves a round of applause. That's the, I think that may be the most record. That's a record. I did good that time. You did. All right. Well, we're about to uh, pray here, and then we will, uh, maybe we can make two tables, and we'll, we'll split the elders up, and we'll come and talk for a few minutes, and we plan to be done before noon. So, Jerry, can you close us in prayer? Yeah. Father, we are very grateful um, for your deep love for us. Now, while we were yet sinners, Christ would die in, in the... Um, we see that work in um, our people. We see that work uh, in our own life. We're overwhelmed by that kind of love and grace and mercy. And Lord, we pray that you would um, use um, these things that we've been able to think about. It has been a thrilling thing uh, to go through what we believe and what you've taught us. And uh, I would ask, Lord, now as we 
um, get to listen to uh, what you've done in the um, lives of these folks. We pray that we would uh, be once again thrilled with who you are and what you've done and how you've done it. Um, and we pray most of all that you would receive glory um, from the time we spent and what we'll hear now around the table in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.